Part two, chapter five of Our Own Set by Ossip Shubin, translated by Clara Bell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Caroline. Part two, chapter five. Countess Jatinska spent almost the whole of her stay in Rome on the sofa. When she was asked what she thought of Rome, she replied that she found it very fatiguing. When the same question was put to her daughters, they, on the contrary, declared themselves enchanted. Sempali knew full well that in all Rome there was nothing they liked better than their never-do-well cousin. He displayed for their benefit all his most amiable graces, criticized or admired their dresses, touched up their coiffure with his own light hand, faithfully reported to them all their conquests, and made them presents of cigarettes and of trinkets from Castellani's. When there was nothing else to be done, he was ready to attend them, of course under the charge of some older lady, to see galleries and churches. Polysena had a way, that was highly characteristic, of rushing past the greatest works with her nose in the air, and laughing as she repeated some imbecile remark that she had overheard, or pointed out some eccentricity of tourist costume. Nini took art more seriously, looked carefully at everything by the catalogue, and even kept a diary. Sena was commonly thought the handsomer and the more brilliant of the sisters, and Sempali apparently devoted himself chiefly to her, but he decidedly liked Nini best. The hours that he did not spend with his cousins he passed at the club, where he gambled away large sums. Meanwhile, he was looking very ill and complained of a return of old Roman fever. And what did the world say to his behaviour? The phlegmatic Italians did not trouble themselves about the matter. Madame de Gondry and Mrs. Ferguson laughed over it, Siegburg pronounced it disgraceful, and Ilsenberg called it a bad taste, to say the least. That he ought to have arranged to leave Rome everybody agreed. Princess Vulpini held long and lamentable conferences with General von Klinger, reproaching herself bitterly for not having seen the position of affairs long ago, but she had never attached any importance to Sempali's marked attentions, having had no eyes for anything but Siegburg's devotion to Zinka, and she had taken a quite motherly interest in what she regarded as a good match for both. Train was perfectly furious with Sempali. All that he was to Zinka during these weeks can only be divined by those who have passed through such a time of grief and humiliation, with the consciousness of having a high-souled and tender friend in the background. He was the only person who never aggravated her wound. He had the gentle touch, the delicate skill, which the best man or woman can only acquire through the ordeal of an aching heart. He came every afternoon with his little girl to take Zinka for a walk, for he knew that the regular drive on the Corso would only bring her added pain, and while the baroness, with outspread skirts, drove in the wake of fashion up to the Villa Borghese and the Pincio, these three, with the general not unfrequently for a fourth, would wander through silent and deserted cloisters, or take long walks across the Campania. 
not once did Truyn bring a secret tear to her eye. If some accidental remark or association brought the hot colour to her thin cheek, he could always turn the subject so as to spare her. One sultry afternoon, late in spring, Truyn and his two daughters, as he was wont to call Zinka and Gabrielle, with the soldier-artist were sauntering home, after a long walk, through the sombre and picturesque streets that surrounded the Pantheon. The neighbourhood is humble and wretched, but over a garden wall rose a mulberry tree in whose green branches a blackbird was singing, and a few red geraniums blazed behind rusty window-bars, bright specks in the monotonous brown, above the roofs bent the deep blue sky, the air was heavy and hot, and full of obscure smells of gutters and stale vegetables. Somewhere, in an upstairs room, a woman sang a love-song of melancholy longing. Suddenly the blackbird and the woman ceased singing at the same time, a dismal howl and groan echoed through the street, and a mass of black shadows darkened the scene. Zinka, who had lately become excessively nervous, started and shuddered. "'It is nothing, only a funeral,' Trun explained, taking off his hat. That was all, a Roman funeral, grim but picturesque, a long procession of mysteriously shrouded figures, only able to see through two slits in the sack-like cowls that covered their heads, ropes around their waists and torches or mystical banners in their hands, banners with the emblems of death. These were followed by a troop of barefooted friars, and last came the bier covered with a bright yellow pall, carried by four more of the shrouded figures, who bent under its weight as they shuffled along. The ruddy flare and the black smoke wreaths, the groan-like chant, the uncanny glitter of the men's eyes out of the formless hoods, ghastly, ghostly, and exhaling a savour of mouldiness and incense, like the resurrection of a fragment of the Middle Ages, the procession defiled through the narrow street. Zinka, half-fainting, clung to Troyne. Gabrielle, whose childish nerves were less shocked, watched them with intense curiosity and began to question a woman who stood near her in the crowd that had collected, in her fluent, bungling Italian. "'Who is it they are burying?' she asked at length. "'A woman,' was the answer. "'Was she young?' "'Si.' "'And what did she die of? Of fever?' "'No,' said the Roman, shrugging her shoulders, and then she added, in the slow musical drawl of the Roman peasant, "'Di passione.' The procession had passed, the chanting had died away, the blackbird was singing lustily once more. They went on their way, Train first with Zinka hanging wearily on his arm, behind them Gabrielle and the general. Passione, is that a Roman illness? she asked with her insatiable inquisitiveness. No, it occurs in most parts of the world, said the general dryly. "'But only among poor people, I suppose,' said the child. "'No, it is known to the better classes, too, but it is not called by the same name,' said the old man with some bitterness, 
more to himself than to Gabriel. "'Then it is wrong, a shameful thing to die of?' she asked with wide, astonished eyes. Suddenly the general perceived that Zinka was listening, her head drooped as she heard the child's heedless catechism. He, under the circumstances, would have felt paralyzed, he would not have known what to say to the poor crushed soul, but not so Train. He turned to his companion and said something in a low tone. What the general could not hear, but it must have been something kind and helpful, something which, without any direct reference to the past, conveyed his unalterable respect and regard, for she answered him almost brightly. Then he went on talking of trifles, remembering little incidents of his boyhood, characteristic anecdotes of his parents, and such small matters as may divert a sick and weary spirit, till, when they parted at the door of the palazzetto, Zinka was smiling. That he has the brains of a genius I will not say, but he has genius of heart, I dare swear, thought the soldier. Train had gone out riding with her two or three times across the Campagna, and she had enjoyed it, but one day they met Sempali, galloping with his two handsome cousins over the anemone-strewn sward. From that day she made excuses for avoiding the Campagna, as though she thus avoided the chance, almost the certainty of meeting him and them. Why, then, did she remain in Rome at all? Sterzl would not hear of her quitting it, because he thought that the world of Rome would regard it as a flight after defeat. His mother, too, on different grounds, set her face against any such abridgment of their stay in Rome. Had she not taken the palazzetto till the 15th of May? And did Zinka, in fact, wish to go? She often spoke of longing to be at home again, but whenever their departure was seriously discussed, it gave her a shock. She dreaded meeting him and longed for it at the same time. And in the evening, when a few old friends dropped in to call, Troin every evening and Siegburg very frequently, Troin noticed that every time there was a ring, she sat with her eyes fixed in eager expectation on the door. She still cherished a sort of hope, a broken, moribund hope, that was in fact no more than unrest, the vitality of suffering. End of part two, chapter five. End of part two, Lent.